0: Here in a dream. I'm just stuck here in a dream Welcome to the Guns and Yoga Podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank you all who have subscribed, listened and shared, and supported the show. I mentioned this on the last show, but we recently hit the 10,000 download mark. When we first launched in early 2020, the only goal that I had was one, to start and two, to provide a community of support, not just to first responders, but their families so that no one ever had to feel alone and offer a platform to educate on all the amazing resources, programs, and tools for those on the front lines. This is personal for me. My husband and I are retired law enforcement officers, and my husband also served in the United States Marine Corps. And so many of my friends are first responders, several of whom have retired. Some have done a really good job setting themselves up for retirement, and I don't just mean financially. I think so much of the time we get so laser focused on what the monthly pension will be or when we can make that last mortgage payment that we forget about our relationships, finding purpose and meaning after we retire, our physical, mental, and emotional health. What good is money in the bank without all these other things? It's so important to me that we have an honest conversation on this show about all of it, trauma, stress, relationships, healing, and resources so that no one ever has to feel that they are in this alone. I also believe that it's crucial we start these conversations early in a career so that retirement doesn't look like a physical, mental, and emotional train wreck like it was for me. I am honored to do this show. It lights me up when I release an episode because I get to speak with interesting people, first responders, subject matter experts, authors, and those running programs committed to first responders. It doesn't feel like work. So thank you all for listening, sharing, and supporting the show. As we move forward, all I ask is that you share, give reviews, and provide feedback. I'm always looking for feedback and ideas and want this to be a collaborative platform. Yes, I'll be the one podcasting, But as the show moves forward, I want you, the listener, to tell me what you'd like more of and what you'd like less of. Today's show will especially be of interest for those agency decision makers and leaders, politicians, or anyone interested in research to support wellness programming. We're going to talk to Colby Mills. He's a clinical and police psychologist who works at Forge VFR in Virginia. He has extensive experience working with veterans and first responders, Colby reached out and told me how he and his colleagues created a national survey in conjunction with the U.S. Marshals in which approximately nearly 9,000 respondents from all first responder agencies, local, state, and federal, participated. This survey asked questions about suicidal ideations, PTSD, and depression. They also looked at common stressors and identified those that had the most impact. I don't want to give too much away, but the preliminary results are consistent with other research studies that I'm familiar with, and that the more damaging stressors were found to be from within the organization morale, being overworked, and lack of closure on critical incidents. The way that I see it, these results serve as an incredible opportunity for commanders, politicians, and decision makers to understand, educate, and inform themselves on how first responders are impacted by the organizational culture. Of course, we can't always help overtime and investigations, but adopting a conscious leadership approach when it comes to understanding and addressing the stressors known to impact the troops will prove to not only support those struggling, but potentially prevent or diminish the blow. And who knows, maybe improve retention and morale along the way. Conscious leaders are open. They're curious and they're committed to learning, not attached to the That's the way we've always done it mentality. This survey provides those conscious leaders to be armed with the facts to inform future programming and implement resources at their agency that are trusted, effective, and accessible. Colby discusses some of the findings in detail throughout this episode, and it may not come as a surprise, but a lot of first responders are suffering in silence. In fact, they found 20% reported clinical levels of anxiety but 74% of those have never been formally diagnosed by a professional. The results show similar results for depression and PTSD. 3% of officers surveyed reported having active thoughts of suicide. The reasons cited for not seeking help are not surprising. Confidentiality concerns, stigma, and the lack of access to resources. Colby and I cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We talk about sleep, mindfulness, meditation, and moral injury. Moral injury is something that's really been coming up a lot lately in this show. And my most recent podcast with Michael Segrew, author of Relentless Courage, he recounts his story of how organizational betrayal led to his moral injury, which is defined as a psychological injury that surfaces as a result of conflict between what your moral code says that you should be doing and what your actions are. And in Michael's case, his injury was inflicted by his own agency. This is consistent with some of the survey results that Colby discusses. After listening to this episode, I encourage you to check out the survey, share it with agency decision makers, politicians, or commanders. This is the type of research that we need to move forward and to get the resources in place needed to support those on the front lines and to make lasting change on the first responder wellness front. Enjoy the show. Today, I'm gonna to be speaking with Colby Mills. He is a clinical and public safety psychologist out of Virginia. Welcome to the show, Colby.
1: Wendy, thanks, I'm really glad to be on. I appreciate you having me.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about this conversation because as you and I were chatting a couple times before uh, we hit record, is the significance about some of the work that you're doing and how far reaching the, the results and impact of some surveys and some things that you're working on that I can't wait to get to really can be for, for law enforcement. But before we get there, what I'd really like you to do is just introduce the listeners, those who don't know who you are, um, and just give us a little bit about your background. You work strictly with public safety uh, as a clinician. How how did that all come, come to be? <laughs>
1: Well, I started out um, many years ago working with emergency mental health. So mobile crisis unit here in Fairfax County, which is where I still am, um, got to know a lot of police officers through that because either we were calling them for backup or they were calling us to come out and evaluate somebody. Um, We advised on hostage and barricade events. So there was a lot of interaction and I kept thinking, I I think I can help these guys. I really would like to help them. and it turned out uh, a colleague of mine was thinking the same thing. So we uh, we ended up getting a contract with uh, Fairfax County Police Department out here. And we were more or less their in-house police psychologists for a decade. Um, my, my colleague, Jill, who's also part of the survey group, uh, she's still there. I left last year um, to join a clinic called Forge VFR, uh, Forge Health, in other words. Forge is a string of clinics um, down the kind of down the Atlantic coast that cater specifically to first responders and military members uh, and their immediate family members. So there are eight clinics uh, ranging from New York on down to uh, my little outpost here in Virginia and everywhere in between. Um, And we have good clinicians who get it. They, they've got some cultural competence. They understand the basics about, you know, the world of public safety and they can hear it, what you need to sit down and unburden yourself of, you know, our people can hear it. Uh, So we've got that as a resource in, I think, six different states now.
0: That's incredible. And and I do want to ask you more about that, but I want to back up just a sec. So you first started and you recognized a need and you started working for the Fairfax Police Department Mm -hmm. as their in-house clinician. How did that go? Was that the first time they'd ever had that kind of a service available to them?
1: it was the first time they'd had it in a full-time, a full-time way. Uh, So they, they'd had part-time people uh, or people who came and responded after critical incidents to check on officers, that kind of thing. Um, But they hadn't had anything full blown Uh, with with us. It was, you know, we worked Monday through Friday. Uh, There was coverage 24, 7, 365 for critical incidents. I mean, uh, Fairfax County PD really they put their money where their mouth is, um, and they 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 tried to get good, comprehensive help for their people that was available all the time. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a really good experience.
0: And it's not an EAP; it was something that was strictly just hired directly by the agency. You and your partner were, and and how were you received by the agency initially, and then? You know, you can go from there.
1: Oh, I think you can answer the question about initially. <laughs> initially, we Probably. Were watching, to be honest, initially we were watching the paint dry on the walls. Um, uh-huh. But, uh, you know, I think part of that was deliberate on the, on the part of the agency commanders. They, they had the presence of mind to take it slow and take us around to roll calls, introduce us. To speak to confidentiality and the utmost importance of that and really uh, be upfront that if we if we didn't keep it tight in terms of confidentiality that they would look they would fire us they would end the contract uh, as well they should so it was really a matter of introducing us rolling us out gradually we also benefited that we, uh, we had both done the global crisis work and at least some of the people at different levels of the agency knew us on a first name basis so we, we got a little word of mouth from that, and it just gradually picked up. Um, and, you know, I think the careful rollout and the fact that people, at least a few people knew us, that really helped get things rolling. Um, and, you know, after, after a little while, uh, I'd say we were pretty well received.
0: Right. And that's, that is exactly what I expected you to say, uh, but I'm glad, I'm glad to hear first of all, that you had, uh, agency leaders that saw the need and, and made it happen. Like you said, because to hire two full-time clinicians is, is quite a jump from going from nothing.
1: Yeah. And it's actually, it's expanded now. Um, it's even bigger than that. Um, uh, so yeah, they've taken it really seriously.
0: Great. And my guess is that you, um, the group there, I know you're not there anymore, but they, they serve agency employees and their family members, or, or how mm-hmm. does that work?
1: Yeah, uh, they serve agency employees first and foremost. Sworn, not sworn, doesn't matter. Um, they, can, they can be there uh, for the family members as needed, um, but they're there for whatever the issue is. A- and they exist. Uh, the officers also have an EAP, so they have access to that as well. Um, the police psychology program is to the side of that. And then they also have chaplains who are excellent. They have a robust peer support program, so they have a lot. Um, and uh, it's really for it. It doesn't matter what the issue is. Um, if you if you want help and need help, the help is there.
0: That's great to hear. I'm always really encouraged when I hear of when agencies are offering these, these types of services to their people. Yeah. So then you said up until a year ago, that's where you were working and now you work for uh, Forge VFR. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I'd never heard of that before.
1: Yeah, it's, um, like I say, I think we have eight clinics and there's a ninth in the works um, across six different states, ranging from New York down here to Virginia. Um, so, New York, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. Um, I believe I've got that list right. If I don't, my boss will yell at me. Uh, but I, uh, I'm sure about I'm Virginia uh, because I'm, I'm the clinic down here in Virginia. Uh, and so, I mean, Forge goes out and hires uh, clinicians who, who had a good bit of experience with public safety culture, with military culture. That's not to say that we know everything about your world, not at all. That's to say that we know some things about your world, and we have the humility to know where our knowledge stops, to know what we don't know. Um, Forge hires and trains people who use evidence-backed therapies because our mindset is we know how difficult it is for you to walk in the door and talk to a mental health professional. We owe it to you to give you the highest percentage shot that we can, and that means using the techniques that work.
0: Right, and... How, like, let's say if I, if I was in that area and I wanted to use the services of Forge VFR, is it open to anyone? What is the process like? Is it a nonprofit? Is it a for-profit?
1: It's a for-profit. They participate with most any insurance uh, company. And it's just, it's a central intake number uh, that you call. Uh, one of the intake uh, professionals does a screening with you and walks you through everything. Uh, you fill out some paperwork because, of course, you do. And uh, then the intake folks get with me or whoever the clinicians are in that location and get things set up.
0: Yeah. Okay. Pretty straightforward. And and you mentioned this, and we talked about this too earlier, finding clinicians who are culturally competent. It's something that I talk a lot about on this podcast. And it basically, for, for those who don't know what that term means, it just means clinicians like yourself who are familiar with the first responder or veteran culture. You understand what it's like, the little bit of the unique, the nuances of this type of work. Mm-hmm. And so in in having that experience and working directly with first responders and, and military personnel, what is it that, that you say, um, like at this point, when, uh, VFR is looking for people, do they, they, do they also have you go through any kind of training or is it mostly just based on your previous experience? Can you, can you tell us a little bit of what that's like? It's both.
1: Um, so they, 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 uh, they look for people who already have cultural competence and then they, they make us better. Uh, so they send us to, um, they have us do training, um, and really, some of it is self-assessment, too. You know, I came in, I was I was very familiar with police culture, somewhat familiar with the cultures of the other branches of public safety, and not as much. Um, I was hit or miss where it regards different branches of the military. So that's where I needed to bone up. So they got me to some resources, and I boned up. Um, and there we go. Uh, so it's a combination of what you come in the door with and how they can make you better.
0: Yeah, and I'm guessing you mentioned this earlier, but things like going out to where they are, you know, doing ride-alongs or spending time, you know, wherever, you know, in in your case, wherever the military personnel would be working at, if if they're still active, um, is are those the types of things that you mean, or or pairing you up with those agencies so that you can meet with them directly?
1: Well, I think one thing about Forge is that they they try and make I was going to say Forge they make relationships with different agencies uh, wherever they are, uh, so they. They try and get, you know, form a personal relationship with this police department, that fire department, um, personnel from this military base, um, and get that connection because that's a way to promote trust. Um, You know, familiarity and trust, and those are crucial. Without those, you really just, you kind of can't get started.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's all about trust, building relationships, and that that can take time, Mm -hmm. as you know. Oh, yeah. So let me, let me ask you this. When we first spoke, we were talking about something that I'm very, very much looking forward to is a national wellness survey that you and some of your colleagues um, are getting ready to, to talk about here in the next month or two. And I want to back up and first say that, that I know for myself, and you and I have talked about, I have a full-time job as a wellness coordinator for a sheriff's office in Kansas, And a lot of what we do at our agency is we inform future programming on evidence-based practices. And I have relied myself in the past on national surveys, on evidence-based surveys from the FOP. And so I think this type of work is very, very important because, as you and I discussed, what the results are, what you're going to discuss with us can really help to, first of all, I think, inform and educate leadership, maybe even politicians, decision makers, but more importantly, tells us what the real critical issues are for the people on the front lines and how to serve them. So I would really like it if you could just kind of explain from the bottom, like just really from where how it all started, how you came to uh, have this idea with your colleagues about a survey and, and just go from there.
1: It, um, well, it, it actually started several years ago uh, with just trying to get an internal snapshot, uh, you know, a snapshot of how the people in Fairfax County police department were doing. Uh, so my, you know, my colleague and I, and some others, uh, we created a survey, put that out to the agency, got a 60% response rate, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then it started to catch on other neighboring agencies asked if they could borrow the survey and take it themselves. And, you know, before we knew it, we had about 5,000 responses from all branches of public safety across Virginia. So we did some stuff with those results uh, and quickly realized that we were in over our heads. We needed people who could really crunch the numbers and analyze the data in a way that we couldn't. Um, got linked up with some folks from the U.S. Marshals Service, uh, which has was, was incredible and still is incredible. Um, they are great people. Uh, they really do God's work. And they were able to they were able to do a lot of this with us and for us um, and made the survey so much better. And then we decided to take it nationwide. So we redesigned the survey to make it more rigorous. We included empirically validated screening measures, blah, blah, I'm putting people to sleep. The, the take home is that the survey got, uh, frankly, a lot longer, uh, but it also got a lot more rigorous so that we can speak with more confidence uh, with what the results are. And we decided to swing big and go nationwide with this. Um, and what we got was um, about just shy of 9,000 responses from all across the country, every branch of public safety, uh, from local through state and federal. Um, everyone spoke up, which before we even get to the result, let's just take a moment to acknowledge the courage involved in that. I mean, at a time like this, with things as difficult as they are, for almost 9,000 people to speak up and answer detailed questions about exposure to traumatic events, suicidal thoughts, depression, PTSD, what stresses them out of what they do about it. Deeply personal things, um, mm-hmm. you know, topics that kind of aren't the things we're supposed to talk about, uh, right? But um, that many people across the country had the courage to speak up uh, and that just that's moving to me every time I think about it.
0: Well, and it it sounds like, especially because you said you partnered with the right people, people in law enforcement and then the right, right, the colleagues that were culturally competent to know how to roll it out. I think that makes a difference too.
1: Well, and this one ended up being, it's a collaboration among the Marshall Service folks, uh, some people from Nova Southeastern University down in Florida. They have a first responder research lab. That's fantastic. And then uh, sort of, random people like myself. Um, and, uh, so it's kind of a small group of us and then uh, some law enforcement folks, um, Herndon police department here in Virginia has played a big role in this as well. Um, so it's really been this kind of collective, um, of like-minded people and it's really, it's great.
0: Yeah. And you said that it was all levels. Like, so you had state, local and Mm -hmm. national levels of public safety and different first responder professions are represented. Did I hear you right when you said that?
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: So fire, EMS, police, dispatch, is that is that what we're talking? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. it, It really um I think we were we were pretty amazed at the breadth of response that we got and uh you know across I think 25 plus states um and DC it just, yeah, it's with that many people and a nationwide sample, it, it lets us speak with a little more confidence about our findings. Um,
0: yeah. yeah. And I would love to, for you to share whatever you can as far as your findings.
1: Sure. Uh, so as you said earlier, the results aren't quite out yet. So this is a bit of a sneak preview. Um, but, uh, you know, to start with some of the obvious things, uh, what we're finding is higher rates of PTSD, of depression symptoms, um, of suicidal thoughts versus the general population. An example, PTSD, now ours was a screening measure, it's not diagnostic, uh, but in the general population, you're looking at about three and a half percent in terms of rates of PTSD. With public safety from our our survey, anywhere between 11% and 18%. Mm. So, I mean, from one in nine to one in five, Depending on the branch of public safety and how you break it down, uh, you know, suicidal thoughts, general population, five percent, public safety, ten percent. Six percent of those are uh, were reporting, and these are the people who spoke up about it, which which may be an underestimate, uh, but six percent are reporting active suicidal ideation, meaning they have a plan and or intent, and regardless of the branch of public safety, these are people who have access to lethal means. Right. either at home or riding on their hip. And that that's alarming. Uh, we looked at, we asked a lot of questions, like I said. Uh, God bless the people who actually filled out this survey. It was, it was a lot. But um, one thing that we looked at was what seems to drive the stress? What seems to drive the higher rates of PTSD symptoms, anxiety, depression? So we looked at it in two different ways. We looked at the, the stressors that were the most common that people experienced. And then we also asked about, which were the stressors that had the most impact? So the most common ones are, you know, you could probably rattle off the list and be spot on, COVID, um, negative perceptions from media and the public, having to respond to critical incidents. Those are the most common, stressful things. But those weren't the ones that seemed to have the biggest impact on people. The most toxic are kind of the psychologically nastiest stressors. Um, those were mostly not operational. They were they were about the organization, low morale, being misunderstood by commanders, being overworked, um, not just going to crit- critical incidents, but then not getting closure on them. Those might seem like normal, everyday kinds of stressors in, in your world, but these were linked to suicidal ideation. They were linked to higher rates of PTSD, depression. It seems like when it comes to the most damaging kinds of stress, the call is coming from inside the house. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And, and unfortunately that does not surprise me. It's consistent with other national research findings that I have been made aware of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's something that I've, it really seems to be coming up a lot, whether it be somebody I talk to on my podcast or, or quite honestly conversations that I just have with people in my day-to-day interactions with my job, in the organizational betrayal and the um, moral injury that people feel mm-hmm. from within. And, and maybe you can speak to that a little bit and how damaging that can be.
1: Well, I talk to people all the time about moral injury these days, um, because that, that's, and for, for people who don't know what that is, moral injury is, in a nutshell, is the, the conflict that comes when what your moral code says you should be doing Butts up against what you're actually doing okay? because you've been ordered to do it, because you've been prevented from doing it, what have you. Um, and there are a lot of examples from the military world, uh, but it's equally applicable to public safety, equally real, uh, and equally problematic. Um, and moral injury is not just some term that's thrown around. We're talking about a psychological injury to people based on this, this kind of the perception that the moral code is being violated. Uh, and that's, that's tough to take for people who have um, high moral standards and expectations of themselves and each other.
0: Right. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding, too, is that, um, you know, and I may be oversimplifying in a lot of this, but, you know, we expect in law enforcement that the people that we work with, and the people that are our our direct supervisors, our leaders there, we look at them as if they're supposed to take care of us. We don't expect them to be the ones that betray us or injure us. It's almost expected from the type of work that we do. So when that does happen, that's where that moral injury comes from is one of the aspects of it. And please, again, correct me if I'm misunderstanding that.
1: No, I think that that's, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, You know, I also think and this is going away from the results from the survey. This is just uh, you know me pontificating, like psychologists would want to do. But I think-
0: pontificate away, <laughs> please do. We'd like to do that on the show. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, I have a PhD. I'm kind of required, but uh, <laughs> it's um, I think you know I think part of it with moral injury now, uh, look just at look just at police. Um, but, you know, these are people who are increasingly being told for reasons that are understandable, but they're being told, "Hey, hang back." you know, don't be less proactive, be more reactive. And that's not, that's not where they feel like they should be. And so Mm -hmm. that sets up that moral conflict. And when that moral conflict hurts, there's your moral injury. I think another Mm -hmm. thing about it, and this again, is just me kind of going off the, with what I think, um, when you go through academy, you are prepared for how to deal with operational stressors, right? It's baked into the training where is your academy course on how to deal with commanders feeling like commanders don't understand you? You know, where's your academy course on, you know, feeling like the rug is pulled out from under you. Where's your academy course on moral injury within the organization? Um, there's not preparation for that. And so it's more likely to hit people from the side.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I, okay, the, well, I didn't mean to. I no, didn't mean no. to derail you from what you were saying. <laughs> no, go go great. ahead.
1: No, I think if there's a silver lining to the the findings about the organisational stressors, it's that it, it's two things. Uh, number one, it means that first responders still have some good resilience to those societal stressors the ex, the COVID exposure, the feeling vilified or misunderstood by society, the media scrutiny, despite how long those have gone on and how severe they are and pervasive. People are still still have some good resilience to those, uh, which is which I think very encouraging. Number two, the things that really seem to eat at people the most are factors that the agency, especially the commanders, have some control over. You know, your frontline first responders can't make COVID stop. They can't force their communities to understand them better, but they can influence their leadership and they can push for healthy changes to their agencies. Um, And I, you know, if I could say uh, one thing to the commanders, um, there are lots of things you can do to get your people well. And getting them well also means you're retaining more of them. Um, You can, as a commander, you can single-handedly reduce how many people need help in the first place. If you find creative ways, and I'm not suggesting this is easy by any stretch, but if you find creative ways to know your people, understand what they're going through day to day, to improve their morale in ways that really mean something to them, and give them closure after they've saved a life or had to take one. Our results say that you can keep people healthier by doing those things. You can cut the chances that they're thinking of ending their careers or their lives way too early. And that is, that's a huge opportunity.
0: You know, it's really timely because the last person I, the last podcast I just Uh, released was a gentleman who just wrote a book called Relentless Courage. Hmm. And he talks about uh, an incident that he was involved in at his agency. And I'll spare you all the details because you should definitely go buy his book. It's really good. Um, his His name is Michael Seguru, but he talks exactly about what you just said. He was involved in a shooting. He had to take a life. It was completely justified. But the way that things were handled and the way he was treated and a lot of it was just uh, a lack of understanding at the time by the agency, that is really what he contributes and his own clinician contributes to the issues that he has, is that exact thing that you just said, is how they treated him, how they isolated him, uh, didn't really check on him. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so that's, that's such important information because um, if someone is involved in an incident, what and especially because you worked in a police department for so many years, how do you recommend leaders implement something like that if they don't have anything in place?
1: Well, I think you know one thing is about the commanders and how they how they behave, what they model for their people. Um, I'll I'll use the um, the chief that I had the most contact with from Fairfax County, um, the the previous chief Ed Rossler. Um, chief Rossler really put himself out there. Um, he spoke openly and publicly about getting regular check-ins with a mental health professional to make sure that as he put it, you know, his head was screwed on straight uh, to make sure that he was still doing okay and to calibrate if he wasn't. And that kind of, that kind of leading by example, I mean, you cannot put a price on that. Um, that is, that's courageous and it, it gets results. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's one thing. Um, I think that freeing up resources, however you can get them um, to get effective help lined up, and it almost doesn't matter what form that takes, it just has to be trusted and effective. Those are hard targets to hit, Um, you know, but it's not just mental health professionals. There are clergy uh, and chaplains. Uh, There are peer support programs there are lots of ways to, to look for effective help. Um, but again, it has to be trusted and it has to work. And some of that you have to kind of give it the initial, uh, investment to find out if it's going to work out, if it's going to be a good fit for your people in your agency. Uh, there's some people out there who are extremely competent, who just may not, it may not be a good fit, a good relationship between that person and this agency. Um, So, uh, really, yeah, I mean, uh, and in terms of fighting that uphill battle to get the resources freed up to do something like that, one thing that we're really hoping is that these survey results give you ammunition to do just that. They arm you with facts to get people's attention and let them know how serious the problems are, and also point up potential solutions, ways to make specific ways to make things better.
0: Yeah. And I would throw in too, besides trusted and effective, accessible, because yes. sometimes one of the things that it seems like that's pretty common is there might be some sort of a resource, but it's really hard. There's a lot of gaps to, to getting into contact with that person or that resource. So that might be something else to consider. Mm-hmm. When um, When you ask these questions, and I don't know how long the survey took for each person to take it, but what are, what are some of the other things that were asked besides the sources of, of stress? Um, did you talk to them about what they might find most helpful as far as resources?
1: Uh, we did a little bit so that to break it down, it, um, it was a long survey. I mean, to complete the whole thing took typically about 45 minutes, mm, okay. all online, all anonymous. So people's identifying information was stripped from the results. Uh, when they submitted it. So no way to identify any particular respondent. Um, And We did that very intentionally, of course. Um, But we asked about four different areas. uh, Exposure to trauma or potentially traumatic events, stress and how people were trying to manage the stress, uh, general health and well-being, and then some demographic information like how long have you been on, what kind of agency are you with, uh, that kind of thing. Um, And so we... um, yeah, those, those were the basic areas. Um, and when we, when we inquired about if people sought help, what kind of help did they seek? Um, the, the highest percentage we got of people seeking help from a particular source was I think 25 or 26%. And that was um, mental health professionals. For whatever okay. reason, that ended up being slightly higher than the others. But let's be clear. All, all the percentages were quite low. Uh, that was the highest percentage of anybody seeking any kind of help, um, despite the relatively high number of people who need help. Um, most people who endorsed some uh, high levels of symptoms for anxiety, depression, PTSD, half to three quarters of them have never been formally diagnosed. They've never sat down to get a formal diagnosis. And, you know, we know what the stigma is um, what the stigma is and what the barriers can be. We, you just talked about some of them, uh, you know, but we need to be doing better than that.
0: And, and I'm curious, did, um, did you ask, or is there any way to know what the reason is, and maybe you just answered it by saying maybe they attribute it to stigma, why they didn't access resources?
1: Uh, we did. Uh, we did actually ask about that. And you know, some of the most common reasons were I thought I could deal with it on my own. Um, mm. I, I thought there would be stigma or I feared retribution, you know, that my agency would find out and that it would you know impact my career progression. Um, and, and that there just wasn't appropriate help available, that I couldn't find appropriate help.
0: That's really good information to have because um, the fear of retribution is something that, mm. that comes up a lot, obviously, so does stigma, but that could really help inform messaging from an agency who wants their people to get help and letting them know that they're not going to get, they're not going to be treated any, any differently if they do seek help.
1: Right, right. And it's about saying it and that it's also about finding ways to demonstrate it. because you know far better than I do that that saying it alone is usually not going to get the job done
0: you're exactly right yes um and and it's hard to do and you're going to have to like you've said in the beginning I mean all of this is about trust and it has to be demonstrated before people are going to probably buy into it is my guess and just blind faith that just because this is something that's being said or it's in our policy uh it's understandable and um That that that's not going to be enough. It has to be demonstrated before people are gonna actually believe it.
1: Well, and another another big reason people didn't seek help when they needed it was worries about confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, you know, people in my profession were not going to keep it tight. And that is absolutely on us. You know, we have, I think as clinicians, we have the absolute responsibility to you to answer any question you have about confidentiality, to show you as many times as it takes that we will keep it confidential um to to talk openly about if there's going to be any kind of relationship with your agency if they're going to be in the mix of that what are the clear boundaries around that and then we're sticking to those um got to be clear messaging about that if an agency employs a mental health professional i think the agency can also put out careful messaging about that to be very transparent and in the true sense of transparency um we are not going to pressure them to give up information and they won't and can't give up information uh, and to explain you know for example that as mental health providers we're subject to fines penalties loss of licensure if we break confidentiality inappropriately um, and that's that's absolutely our responsibility
0: I think that's really important because especially if you have somebody who's never used a clinician or a therapist, they don't understand that. And let's face it, you probably know this now since you've been working around first responders a lot, but sometimes people like to talk, right? Um, there's not a lot of uh, confidentiality unless you have a good friend and it's important for people to understand that because of the same goes with peer support. Cause I, I manage our mm-hmm. peer support team and that is something that we're we're very, very big on. And in fact, we are fortunate in the state of Kansas, we have a, a state statute that protects peer support conversations. And so educating people on that, like, hey, if you seek out a peer support person, unless um, there's cert- There obviously there's going to be there's going to be things that are going to violate that that statute. Meaning, if somebody's suicidal or homicidal, obviously those are exceptions. Uh, but other than that, that conversation is protected, and it's really important for us to make sure people know that. And obviously, the same goes when it comes to to seeking therapy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my crowd is exactly like your crowd, and peer support in that trust and and people being able to see us as trustworthy, know that we are in their guts. I mean, it is the foundation of anything else we try to do. Um, Yeah. And I, you know, you guys have that, that statute protecting you. Uh, We have that here in Virginia for peer support Mm -hmm. teams as well. And you see that in more and more states now, which is great. I think the other thing too is, and this is where word of mouth becomes really, really important it's not just about the facts of the situation it's about the perception so I can lay out facts all day long I can show you federal statutes I can show you Virginia statutes I can show you my code of my code of conduct um, that absolutely prohibits me from releasing information when it's inappropriate I can show you what the limits are around that but unless you trust that information how much good is that so that's where the word of mouth comes in that if someone you trust who they've been in the foxhole with you, so to speak, they can say, you know, Hey, I went to this guy and, and he's not bad. Uh, he keeps his mouth shut. That's at least as useful as anything I'm going to say to you. Um, and that to go back to something you said uh, a few minutes ago, that's another thing that takes time and patience.
0: And that, honestly, that might even be more important. That's, that's my experience is getting the people who are trusted at the agency to be able to say, Hey, I went and saw this clinician. I used peer support. It really helped me. Mm -hmm. And that ripple effect, like that's what I have personally seen to be the most beneficial and the way to get people to buy in. And people have told me that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious. I'm going to switch gears a little bit about your survey. Um you had mentioned that one of the areas was, you know, health and well-being or health and wellness. Uh, I can't remember how you worded it, but mm-hmm. what other types of things I'm curious did you ask or were looking to measure? Was it just mental and emotional uh issues and, you know, stress and trauma or w- was it resources having to do with any kind of physical um fitness resources or or lifestyle factors?
1: Well, we, we asked some questions about a few questions about physical fitness, but uh, I think the one that I really want to highlight um is sleep.
0: Okay. So yeah, good. We
1: asked a lot of questions about sleep. Um people who know me know that it's a soapbox issue for me as a professional. Um, but we asked a lot of questions about that. Um and across our survey, there were a few personal stressors that were universal. So across all of public safety. They relate to depression and anxiety and PTSD symptoms and suicidal ideation. Sleep problems were at the top of that list.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Now, look, I can hear people thinking it. it right, great. How am I going to shoehorn more hours of the day so I can actually get a decent amount of sleep? Because I'm being forced into overtime, I'm being overworked. It is. And I know that's a tough battle right now. I'm not trying to make light of it. But it's also about the quality of the sleep that you do get. And there's no way to self assess that. So, I I would, going off these results, I would beg you to please go get screened by a sleep physician if you have never done that before. No matter who you are, no matter age or where you are in the career, um, go get screened by a a board certified sleep physician. It's you go in, you do a a regular outpatient visit, you fill out a raft of paperwork, they talk to you for a bit. That's it. If they think they need to take it further, then they might bring you in for a sleep study or have you do one at home or something like that, but only if that's needed. I mean, the the research is very, very clear um, that untreated sleep problems shorten your lifespan. There's no ambiguity about that. That's black and white. Therefore, improving your sleep adds years to your lifespan. And that's something that you can, that something you can do something about right now.
0: Yeah. And, um, I have often said, because I've struggled with sleep problems on and off my whole life, mostly because of my career, um, that if I was queen for the day, I'd wave my magic wand. And that would be the, if there was only one issue that I could help people solve, it would be that because I I really do understand the impact on our mental and physical health when it comes to sleep. So I'm glad you brought that up.
1: I would look, if there's a vote for that, I would absolutely vote for your queen for at least a day.
0: Okay, thank you. No, we'll
1: get you a crown. Yeah, all that.
0: I don't even need the crown.
1: (laughs) Oh, Just give me the
0: the the magic wand.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, the the sleep stuff is just, and and, uh, what kills me is that most sleep disorders are very, very treatable. Uh, You know, if it ends up being sleep apnea, there's a gold standard for treatment for that. If it's insomnia, That can be treated through medical means. It can be treated through psychotherapeutic means, so talking therapy. Um, And both of those are quite effective. So look, if you get it diagnosed, it's not just some piece of trivia about your personal health. It is actionable intelligence. You can do something about that and improve your health and and extend your lifespan.
0: Well, and I know we're not necessarily supposed to talk more in depth about sleep, but since we're there, I'm going to ask you, um, because a lot of this comes up all of the time. I I feel like I have these conversations with people and I'm always looking to get people's input on this, especially people like you who are trained and have a lot of knowledge and, and helpful information. So you've got people who say that they've either got insomnia, meaning that they can't fall asleep. Or then you have the people that fall asleep, but then they wake up and they can't go back to sleep. Is there any way to address the difference? And then even if you don't mind, talk a little bit about levels of cortisol, melatonin, and how that might factor in without getting too in the weeds. But I'm just for people who are listening to this, who might want, might something has been sparked about talking about sleep, maybe something that, that might catch their interest to motivate them to go see a doctor.
1: Well, yeah, I would, I would defer to the MDs, uh, which I am very much not about, um, you know, about the biology of this, uh, the, the relationship of cortisol, melatonin, uh, you know, to the onset of sleep, the quality and progression of the sleep stages, all that jazz. That's the MD side of the house. Um, what I would say is that a thing that I commonly see uh, interfering with getting to sleep or being able to get back to sleep once you wake up um, is stress um, and mm-hmm. that's that stress uh, of the everyday variety uh, that's trauma um, absolutely if trauma is present um, and it's interfering with people, then sleep is one of the most common areas where that that plays out. Um, and boy, it's hard. Um, you know if you get a thought or a worry stuck in your head, um, I think what, what a lot of people, their first impulse is to try and force that thought out of their head to banish it, uh, to kind of wrestle it down by sheer force of mental will. And look, it's not that you guys aren't incredibly mentally strong and tough. It's that that doesn't work. Um, that's not effective. What can be effective is to divert your attention to something else. Um, and that's why, um, doing, uh, sleep meditations, body scans at bedtime, uh, something, um, something, there's even an app called Calm where they will quite literally tell you bedtimes to raise for grownups. Um, it's something to divert your attention so that you can kind of focus on that um, and you're not so focused on the problem or traumatic event that's running around around the racetrack of your mind. Um, so forcing that thought out is counterproductive. Diverting your attention to something else is usually more successful. Not that that's 100%, but that that does help. And look, if the sleep problems are pervasive, um, if there's a stressor or a traumatic event that you cannot shake, please tap in some form of support, whether it's clinician like me, um, a a clergy, member of the clergy, or a chaplain that you trust, a valued peer, lowercase or uppercase, um, for peer support, whoever it is, please tap in support. You need someone outside yourself to help you through that.
0: Yeah and you know you you bring up something that everybody would probably expect to hear is that it all comes down to managing stress but that's but just knowing that and doing that is there's a big difference mm-hmm. and I think I think so much of what I see because it's it is something that's something that you ha- it is something you have to focus on all of the time just because you're able to manage your stress well at some point right. people fall back and i think they kind of go back to their old patterning and i'm speaking from personal experience and obviously the name of the show is guns and yoga for a reason i mean <laughs> yoga and meditation are what really helped me manage stress and get me on track but you know that's something that i have to practice all of the time. And so all of those things that you mentioned, I mean, I think that like you said, you there there's definitely a place for people having to get that that help from a clinician or a therapist. But in the meantime, there's a like there's a whole array of different ways that people mm-hmm. can manage their stress and regulate their nervous system. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because that might be different for different people. And being able to have the willingness to try those things that you mentioned, like sleep meditations or something called yoga nidra, even going out and going for a walk, learning how to, to breathe, moving your body. Because I think for some people, and I know you're going to know more about this than I am, they may not be able to talk about something because they may not even really know what they need to talk about. But I think sometimes just moving their body can, can really be a good way to, to start and to help kind of regulate some of those things that they may be feeling, but, but don't necessarily have words for.
1: Uh, you know, I think that with, with my crowd, a skill set that we tend to have is helping people find the words, you know, uh-huh. helping remove whatever roadblocks there are to being able to express for instance a traumatic event in words, because I, I really think that's crucial. And there's a fair amount of research to support that, that finding a way to put it in words out loud, in writing whatever it is, um, is really beneficial for processing a traumatic event or an event that's kind of stuck. Um, but yeah, that's, that's out, you know, uh, at the extreme where, uh, someone is actually suffering from trauma, the far more common everyday kind of stress. Um, yeah, that mindfulness practices meditation. I, I teach mindful breathing, um, all the time, because I just, I've seen the benefit uh, clinically, anecdotally, uh, personally, everything. Mm -hmm. Um, I push meditation. I don't teach it because I'm not any kind of a guru, but I direct people to resources where they can learn how to meditate uh, and get a working knowledge of what that is. Um, And a great one is, you know, if you stream Netflix, uh, uh, Headspace, Headspace. uh, they have an app, but they've also created a show on Netflix that will walk you through the basics of how to meditate. You'll have a kind of gut sense of what it feels like to do that and what that is. Um, and you know, regular meditative practice, just uh, when you know the research as well as I do, I'm sure there's, there's just a stack of research about the benefits for psychological health, physical health, stress reduction, um, lowering blood pressure. I mean, it, it really just runs the gamut. Um,
0: Yeah, no, and I I did not know that Netflix had Headspace. So I'm gonna have to check that out because I've never been on Headspace because I don't have that app. So thank you for mentioning that.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great.
0: Yeah. And just just really quickly, and then we can move on. But when it comes to meditation, I think a lot of people get turned off, first of all, by the word, but it Mm -hmm. can be, it really can be hard if you've never meditated. And depending on how activated you are for somebody to just sit and meditate and understanding that there's an array of different mindfulness practices and ways to kind of to start out. And and you mentioned one of the things you mentioned was a body scan and breathing, but because it can, you know, in in some cases, it can be more triggering for somebody to just sit down and meditate depending on where they're at on that spectrum.
1: Yeah, I I think people get this kind of um, impression of mindfulness and meditation that it's some out there woo woo kind of thing to do. And Mm -hmm. really, I mean, the best definition of mindfulness is paying attention to what's going on right now in this moment without uh, making judgments about it. So in other words, it's uh, my, my best comparison that I like is think about the last time you were at the beach and you just had a bunch of free time and you were just sitting there on the shore watching the waves roll in, the waves roll out. You don't need to make any decisions about those waves, no judgments about those waves. You're not evaluating them. You're just watching them. You're getting caught up in watching them. That's mindfulness practice. It's really that deceptively simple. And meditation isn't too far different from that. But people kind of have to like get over that first hump of, oh, I don't know about this. Give it at least to at least dip a toe in that water. And then they find out, oh, that's all this is? This is easy. I can do this. And it's not about mastering it. Um, it's about practicing it.
0: Yeah. And I, and I've been teaching yoga, meditation, and mindfulness to first responders for years. And it's similar to what you talked about with cultural competence. It's just being able to explain it in a way that's easy, easily understandable. And then really the way for people to understand it is just by doing it. And they're like, oh, okay, that's not, that's not so bad. I kind of already do that anyway. When, (laughs) like you said, when I go to the beach or I sit outside or I, you know, go out and go fishing or whatever the case may be. So yeah. Exactly. Okay. So um, didn't mean to get so far off on that tangent, but I appreciate that conversation. I could talk about that stuff all day long. Any any other highlights um, from the survey that, that you would like to share with the listeners?
1: I, I think it's really about, um, you know, I think our survey results are confirmation of some things that you, know, you see elsewhere in the research and that people kind of know it in an intuitive way. Um, and then some some more surprising findings, but uh, to me, it's really about offering specific, compelling pieces of information that are then actionable. You know, I think about if you were dispatched on a call and all the information that you got was, uh, there's a person hurt, go help them. It wouldn't stop you from going and trying to help. You do the very best you could do because that's your mission. But chances are you'd be a lot more effective at it if you had more specific information. This person has been beaten in the middle of a domestic dispute. She's reporting that uh, her boyfriend's pointing a gun at her. Okay, that's going to get your attention exactly like it should. And it's going to give you a lot more clear ways in how to be of service, what kinds of help you need to provide, and which ones aren't going to be so effective. So I think where we come in uh, is to offer some of that specificity of information that can lead to, you know, concrete ways to make things better because you all deserve that. Um, especially right now.
0: No, I couldn't agree more. And like we talked about in the, the beginning of the conversation is that this, this type of information is so crucial for, to get into the hands of the people who are making the decisions and who have the, know have access to the budgets because these are the people who are going to decide where the resources go and to be able to support the people that are still doing this very very noble profession so I, i think what you're doing is so important and i'm i really appreciate and applaud you for doing it
1: oh thank you i i this is um it's a passion project for all of us um it's because it's just so clear to us you need more help than you're getting. Um, and I think, you know, we are heading into the fall. We're going to be looking for lots of ways to put this out there in the public eye, put it out there where first responder can see it, where commanders can see it, where legislators who control budgets can see it, and where the general public can see it. Because if they understand what's going on for you a little better than they do, the relationship between, for example, police and the communities maybe gets a bit easier. Um, you know, So I think we're going to be looking at a lot of ways to do that. Um, Thank you, Wendy, for being one of those ways right now. Uh, This is incredible to be able to speak from this kind of a platform. Um, For anybody who's listening to this or comes across the results another way, please help us. If you look at this and think this is something other people need to hear, any way you want to put this out there, please do. We will be, uh, we're in the middle of preparing our nationwide report. Um, if your agency participated in this survey, your agency already has a report about your agency's results. Uh, we'll be putting it out there in a lot of different ways. Try to amplify the message if you're willing to do that. That would help a lot.
0: Yeah, definitely. I will. I always encourage people who listen to this show, if they find value to please share it, um, send it to anybody who, who they think might need to hear it. Uh, definitely. When the results do come out, if your agency did not participate, what is the best way? uh, And and of course, you can send it to me and I can share it. But Mm -hmm. but until that time, how do you recommend people find the survey results?
1: Um, I think that we are, uh, and this is where the people who are uh, internet savvy, uh, which I am Mm -hmm. not, uh, are going to be the experts, uh, but they're they're exploring some way to put it out there, either on a dedicated web page or something like that we were also uh, talking to a couple of different media outlets to put it out that way. Uh, chances are, give it a month or two. And if you Google this, uh, you'll, you'll get some results. Actually, you'll already get some results about why it was important to take the survey, what, what the purpose and meaning of the survey are. But if you, if you give us about a month, uh, the results will be out there and we'll make them as findable as possible.
0: Okay, and I'll share whatever links I can um, I that, that I have available to me here, so I can so people can can check that out. And and two other questions I have for you: um, one is, was there one thing that stood out that surprised all of you that put this together, um, or were were the results what you expected to see? Anything like that? I
1: just speaking for myself, I, one thing that surprised me: I expected COVID. Um, mm. to be, to really have a strong relationship with the anxiety, um, maybe some extent depression and PTSD, but I, I really thought, Hey, COVID is driving a lot of anxiety. Not so much. It's a, it was a very common stress stressor that people faced, but it wasn't the one driving the bus. The, the stuff that driving the bus was primarily organizational stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that was surprising, um, Sadly, not surprising were the alarmingly high rates of depression, PTSD, suicidal ideation. And again, particularly with suicidal ideation, I would guess that's a, that may be an underestimate. We, we have no way of knowing that. Uh, but that's such a stigmatized topic. And until we make it a much less stigmatized topic, it's going to be one that people um, have to really swallow a lump in their throat to report. Even in an anonymous survey, so despite yeah. all that, the numbers were as high as they were, um, and that's not surprising but alarming.
0: Sure. And if there's if there's an agency that is looking to do just even an internal survey to see uh, what to kind of inform or guide like what the, what's going on with the agency, what kind of res- what, what the, the issues are for that agency. Because even though these results are very, very helpful for all first responders, um, just if you want to know the unique kind of what's going on, the ins and outs of your own agency so that you can inform what kind of programming to put in place, how do you recommend people do that? Do you think that they should elicit the help of like your I don't know if you do that or if there's like, you know, a particular way to go about that instead of just trying to come up with a random survey on your own.
1: <laughs> I, I wish we had an A-team <laughs> that, you know, could, uh, could go around and help people create their own surveys. It's sad that we don't have the manpower to do something like that. Um, I, I really think, um, look, it doesn't have to be something that you're going to get published in some academic journal I, I think the biggest hurdle is in asking the questions in a way that invites honest responses. Uh, okay. So, you know, both times that we've done this, we've gone to great lengths to make sure that the results were anonymous. There's a trade off in that. You know, if someone reports that they're having active thoughts about suicide, it's an anonymous result. Um, and we agonized about that because, look, there's no way to get to route help to that person. Right, uh, but you know, we made the judgment right or wrong that the trade-off was that the more people we can give a comfort level to to fill this out, that outweighs the risks. That outweighs the downside. Um, if you're if you're an agency and you're contemplating doing something like this, you might make a different call. Um, there's not there's not some gold standard for exactly how to do this. Um, but I really I really think the biggest hurdle to clear is okay, Gulp, uh, we're going we're gonna to seriously sit down with our people and ask them how they're doing, and then we're going to honor the results. That's the other piece. You collect information, um, and if people have the – if you put it out there and they have the courage to speak up, I do think there's an obligation then to find effective things to do with that information.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, take a snapshot, but then I beg of you to act on it. And that's easier said than done, too. But yeah, there there are you can find ways to do that.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, And and one last thing, you may not be expecting this, but as someone a mental health professional who has committed their you know their practice and their work to helping first responders, um, that's not an easy job. And we appreciate the fact that there are people willing to do that to listen and help how is it that you manage your own self-care or take care of yourself, your wellness and your resilience? Um, if you don't mind sharing that with, with the listeners.
1: Well, sure. Um, I, I think that I, you know, I'm imperfect about it, but I try to practice what I preach in terms of if I'm telling you to practice mindfulness, that's because I practice mindfulness. I, you know, I, I practice relaxation breathing. If I'm telling you to meditate, uh, I use meditation on a regular basis and that helps keep that helps keep my stress level low. Um, you know, I have supportive colleagues. I have a wonderful wife. Um, you know, I have uh, close friends and family members that I'm obviously not going to sit down and go into detail with any of those folks, uh, for a lot of reasons, but knowing that people have my back, uh, is valuable to me. And, you know, I hope for each one of you that, you've got people who have your back too. You sure do deserve it.
0: Well, thank you. That's, sounds like you've got it all figured out. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> can I quote you on that? <laughs> I, you most certainly can yeah. along with me being the queen for a day. Yes.
1: Well, Queen Buddy says that it's gotta be true.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, we'll just make sure my husband knows that. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's
1: probably listening.
0: He will be. He will be. He'll be editing. He'll probably edit this part out. But uh, any... No, I really appreciate that because it's so important to make sure. And I don't think that we can have enough of those those resources, those reinforcements. And I think you hit the nail on the head is just the people in our life. It's, It's so important because... Me included. I did this. I used to do this. I was very guilty of isolation and not talking to people. And I think we really need to make sure that we tap into to all the people in our life and and go out of our way, um, if at all possible, to not do that. So that that's very very good advice.
1: Well, and I think for you guys, there's this tendency too to to, uh, to think, well, I don't want to put it on them. You know what I you know what I face down, what I deal with is is really dark. Um, it's disturbing. People wouldn't want to hear it or I'm not, I'm not going to put it on them. The people in your life are grown adults. Ask them.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, the U S marshals actually did a little research on this. Um, a- and found that they looked at the spouses of people who were con, that were facing some of the worst kind out there. They were dealing with child exploitation cases. Um, and apologies to the marshals folks if I mangle what they found, but I, um, the gist of it was that the spouses routinely were willing to hear more than the detectives thought they could. So that's that's, that's a little surprising,
0: uh, yeah, but it's worth that
1: conversation. Um, yeah, yeah. How, I, would, I would I would love to
0: get a hold of that. I'd love to get a hold of that research because one of the things that that I do in my full time job is we're really trying to build out our family aspect of our wellness program. And it's, it's something that comes up quite often as that people take it upon themselves, the first responders, to hold back information that is shared because, it, you know, they, don't, they want to protect their spouse. I always say just intuitively because this is, you know, being married to someone who was also a first responder, you know, how do you know that they don't want to hear right. it? Why don't you ask them first and then kind of make the, the decision and not just assume that because everybody, they may not want to hear it. Um, but how do you know if you don't ask and involve them in that decision? So, so thanks for bringing that up. And if you could share that with me, I would, I would love to, to look at that research. Yeah, of course. All right, Colby, anything else for the listeners that you think that, that they need to hear that w- you and I haven't covered?
1: Oh, no, I think we've, uh, I think we've gone soup to nuts here. I, I just really, um, I, I really can't express how much I appreciate being able to be on with you. Uh, this really has been great. uh, And it means a lot to me personally and professionally. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, please share, subscribe, and review. Be sure to see links in the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode. And remember, we are better together.